0: We are in uh, Psalm 80 tonight, and uh, Israel's Messianic Restoration is what I've titled this here. We don't know the exact occasion for the writing of Psalm 80. It's very general. We do know there's a background here of of oppression by the Gentiles, but exactly the occasion is just left open-ended. Well, because of God allowing His people to be ravaged by Gentile beasts, as they are described here in this psalm, Some on the scene at that time may have questioned whether the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant was in jeopardy. Well, Asaph writes to assure his readers that indeed God would eventually restore his people, ultimately under the man of his choosing, uh, the Son of Man, as he's called here, the, the man of God's right hand, which in the end, I believe, is a reference to Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, Note on the overhead, as far as uh, the outline uh, of the psalm here, uh, first we have the first three verses, a prayer for divine restoration. Four through seven, despair over God's anger. Uh, Eight through 16, description of God's vine, which is uh, illustrative of uh, Israel. And then uh, 17 through 19, restoration in uh, the man of God's right hand, which I take to be ultimately Jesus, as I said, Let's pick it up, verses 1 through 3, Prayer for Divine Restoration. There's a, over the top of the psalm a title, uh, To the Chief Musician Set to the Testimony of Asaph, a psalm. We don't know exactly what this means. Uh, evidently, a reference to some type of musical notation uh, that was recognized by the people at the time Asaph wrote the psalm. But as you read the commentaries, they're just not totally clear on, on exactly the significance of it. Verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Occasionally, God is referred to by the figure of a shepherd in the Old Testament. Twice in the Psalms, he is spoken of as being Israel's shepherd. When you think of a shepherd, what do you think about? Well, you think about his care, but you also think about his leading And notice it talks about, uh, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. So certainly that emphasis is here. It speaks of uh, God's uh, leading and tending to his people. And it's uh, it's a figure of tenderness and care. And the figure of God being a shepherd, I believe, as the Scripture is progressive, it progresses to the point where we have the ultimate fulfillment of this figure in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see it's a dominant theme uh, in the scriptures. Uh, of course, we have Old Testament, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, come to the New Testament, John 10, Jesus, the good shepherd, gives his life for the sheep. He is called the great shepherd in Hebrews thirteen twenty, And then he's called uh, the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. So we see uh, the shepherd imagery uh, very closely connected with God, Messiah. Well, because of uh, the prominence of Joseph and the size of the two tribes, uh, which were large tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, that developed from him, sometimes the whole nation of Israel is spoken of as Joseph, uh, different places in the Old Testament. Uh, God here is spoken of as dwelling between the cherubim the cherubim. You know, there's different uh, ranks of angels, and, and one of the ranks of angels uh, is cherub, cherubim. Uh, the cherubim were uh, two angelic figures that h- hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, and in view really is the imminent uh, presence, uh, the intimate presence of God. Uh, you know, everything's just a picture, right? But uh, you can see the Ark of the Covenant and then the uh, Actually, his angels were were very large, like 10 meters high. So it's not a, a really good representation here. But anyway, but note here, the plea is for God to shine forth. In the sense of bursting forth in power and deliverance on behalf of his people. When God shines forth, darkness and gloom vanish at his delivering presence. Verse 2, Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Now these three tribes that are mentioned, uh, Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, they were grouped together on the west side of the tabernacle. Uh, and really were the first, uh, the vanguard, if you will, they were the, the first in line to follow the ark when the people set out on their journey. So, so note uh, here, if you'll see this here, uh, here they are, you got the tabernacle, and of course, uh, families of Levi, the Levites. But then you got these uh, three tribes on the west, and that's the three that are mentioned here. Just kind of interesting that they were prominent in terms of uh, their role there. They were the first to follow the ark out, and when they would break camp. Now the request is for God to stir up His strength, which is sort of like saying, "God, please flex, flex your muscles." <laughs> Flex your muscles on our behalf. Uh, The plea is uh, specifically, come and save us. Come and deliver us. God's people were in need of deliverance. Again, we don't know the exact occasion, but they were in trouble. And so he says, verse 3, Restore us, O God, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Again, God's face shining on someone indicated his favor and his blessing. And this goes back to the priestly blessing. It's a beautiful blessing in Numbers chapter 6. I think it's one of the most beautiful blessings uh, in the Bible. The Lord bless you and keep you. And, of course, God told the priests that they were to bless his people in this way. The Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord cause his face to frown upon you. No, no. Uh, Shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So Asaph was expressing uh, that God's blessing would be upon them. And he's expressing really complete dependence upon God for uh, deliverance. Restore us could also be uh, rendered turn us again. Charles Spurgeon says here, all will come right if we are right. The best turn is not that of circumstances, but of character. When the Lord turns his people, he will soon turn their condition." So it could be, when it says, restore us, this could be translated, uh, turn us again. A lot of the commentators uh, bring this out. Verses 4 through 7, despair over God's anger. Uh, Obviously, God is not happy with these people at this point. Uh, There's a lot of things you could look at in Israel's history to say, well, here's why God's not happy. But again, we don't know the exact occasion. Uh, Verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? No, when God's angry with the prayer of somebody, what do you think is happening in relationship to that prayer? It's not heard. It's not answered, right? It's like God's not responding. And so that's really, I think, what he's saying here. Clearly, the writer perceived God as being angry with his people, even to the point where he's not listening to their prayers. Prayers were not being answered. You know, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes God doesn't answer prayer for whatever reasons. He uh, talks to husbands to treat their wives right, Peter does, uh, so that your prayers are not hindered. I mean, that can really crimp your prayer life, right? You treat, your, treat your wives right. It's getting close to Valentine's Day. I've got to say something like this. But anyway. <laughs> it's not in my script here. I should have said that. Anyway. Uh, their prayers were not being answered. Uh, God was holding out on them in that sense uh, because he was angry with them. And it's interesting here, will you be angry is literally, will you smoke? As if, as if God is red hot mad, smoky mad, we might say. How long will you be smoky mad against the prayer of your people? Again, literally, uh, will you smoke? How long will you smoke against the prayer of your of your people, That's the idea of, you know, again, very heated, angry. Asaph here used the, the metaphor of a, of a diet of tears to express the continuous sorrow of God's people. Uh, when he says, you have fed them with the bread of tears, verse 5, and given them tears to drink in great measure. So terrible what they were going through. It's like there, there's a lot of crying going on here. There's a lot of tears here. Again, we don't know the exact occasion. Uh, Some think it relates to the captivity, maybe the Assyrian captivity. Um, uh, We don't really know exactly what the occasion is. Uh, Verse 6 You have made us a strife to our neighbors, and our our enemies laugh among themselves. So here, Gentile oppression is clearly described. But note he says, God has put them in this position. You have made us a strife. God has put them in this position of being an object of contention before their neighbors. Their enemies are laughing at them. They are objects of scorn and ridicule. Alexander McLaren says, The psalmist points to an angry God, a weeping nation, and mocking foes. A trilogy of woes. That's a good summary statement. Uh, Points to an angry God, a weeping nation, and and mocking foes. Verse 7, Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Restore us repeats the refrain from verse 3. God of hosts pictures him as having power over all. And once again, he asks for the favor of God's face to shine upon them in bringing about deliverance. Well, verses 8 through 16 now, he kind of reviews the history of the nation. And so again, I think he's thinking in pretty broad terms here. Uh, Verse 8 through 16, a description of God's vine. Here he traces uh, the history of Israel in the figure of a vine and shows how God brought them out of Egypt, transplanted them in the land of Canaan, prospered them there, but has now allowed them to be violated. Verse 8, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. Now, the vine is not a very impressive plant uh, in and of itself, right? I mean, it's a lowly plant. It's weak. It's needing support. However, with the right support system, it can thrive and bear wonderful fruit. Uh, This is the picture of what God did with Israel as he brought them out of Egypt and planted them in Canaan. He continues, verse 9, You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, the mighty uh, cedars with its bows. bows. Uh, The vine that God planted in Israel flourished and grew mighty and large where it filled the land. That's the picture. Verse 11, She sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. So at the height of her thriving under David and then Solomon, Israel's domination stretched from the Mediterranean Sea he says, uh, sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. Uh, the sea is thought to be the Mediterranean Sea, and the river uh, is the, thought to be the Euphrates River. And uh, we see this under Solomon, for example, in First Kings. So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river, Euphrates River, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So this is kind of the heyday Uh, You know, the high point uh, here, uh, you've got the territory under David, you know, uh, before David, excuse me, uh, the the red is before David, area conquered by David, inherited by Solomon, so this is, you know, the area where David hit most of it, but then under Solomon, it went a little further even, extended all the way to the Euphrates River, all the way down here to the Mediterranean Sea, down, down here to Egypt. So he's remembering how God brought them into the land, planted them there, and they prospered to that end. Those were the glory days. But now, something has happened. Verse 12. Why have you broken down her hedges? So that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit. The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. So again, he's speaking in figurative, picturesque language here. They had prospered as a people in the land, but now something has happened. Uh, Note the psalmist uh, writers consistently recognize God as being sovereign over whatever is happening with his people. Uh, They didn't just say, oh my, we've had a patch of bad luck. No. They constantly saw God behind the, the curtain, sovereignly orchestrating whatever they were going through, And so it is here with with the, the hard thing that they're going through right now. In this case, God has allowed their protection, their hedge, to be removed. And they have been ravaged and violated by the Gentiles. And of course, this does speak, I think, in reference ultimately to the captivities. Now, in ancient Israel, a vineyard was commonly surrounded by a thick, thorny hedge, which kept thieves and wild animals at bay. So Asaph is speaking symbolically and says Israel's hedges have been broken down by God. And consequently, their land was being plundered and devoured by their enemies. Now these enemies are portrayed as wild boars. You ever had any contact with wild boars? I tried to get in contact with one down in Texas. <laughs> they were kind of elusive. But... uh Wild boars are known for their destructive tendencies. There's a reason you don't even have a license to shoot these things in Texas, right? I mean, they want to get rid of these creatures. I mean, not just the boars, all the hogs, the wild hogs. But uh, they are known to be able to destroy a vineyard in a single night. I mean, they can do a lot of damage in a hurry. This psalm speaks generally and the truth of being violated by the Gentiles and restoration ultimately coming from the Son of Man who is at God's right hand as we will get to the end of the chapter, which in the broad scheme of things, uh, I think here, this, uh, what they are going through in terms of the oppression of the Gentiles, I think speaks to the times of the Gentiles from which Jesus will ultimately deliver Israel. I mean, that's an extended period of time. It's times of the Gentiles. The Babylonian exile began the times of the Gentiles, and it ends when the Messiah finally returns to the earth at his second coming. It includes the time gap of the church age where we live, times of the Gentiles, will come to a climax under Antichrist, and again will be completed at the second coming when all Israel will be saved as their deliverer comes from Zion. This is what Psalm 80 ultimately prophetically portrays. And Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 lay out the times of the Gentiles in great detail. If you've never studied that, it's a fascinating study. Uh, let me just give you the overhead, and we'll talk about it for just a moment. You know, uh, when the Jews came into the land of Canaan, they became a prominent, prominent nation in the world. For this, you have, you have Egypt, but uh, then as they come out of Egypt and God puts Pharaoh down, I mean, he gets fame throughout the whole world, and he plants his people, there. They be, uh, you have some the Jewish, well, Jewish supremacy in the earth. But then you have the captivity. And the Babylonian captivity began what we call the times of the Gentiles. And uh, as you trace it down through history, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, finally the revived Roman Empire out of which the Antichrist will come. This whole period of time here is called the times of the Gentiles. And finally, it comes to a conclusion with Christ at the second coming, as he destroys the uh, Gentile world empire uh, under Antichrist, and he sets up his everlasting kingdom. And then again, uh, Jewish supremacy. I mean, uh, Israel will be the, the head and no longer the tail. Well, that's where we're going to in this chapter In the meantime, we find Gentile oppression being emphasized here. Verse 14, return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. We need your visitation. The vine, Israel, needs God's visitation. And the vineyard, which your right hand has planted, and the branch that you made strong for yourself, it is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Again, seeing God as sovereign behind everything. Yes, the Gentiles are doing it, but they see God as sovereignly allowing it. Uh, Instead of smiling on them, instead of uh, his face shining upon them, they have the rebuke of his countenance. That's what they're experiencing. Israel, for a very long, prolonged amount of time, during the times of the Gentiles, has been trodden down by the Gentiles. I mean, this is the times of the Gentiles. They're having their way with the Jews. It's true to this day. Can't even really control what's going on in their own Temple Mount. You say, well, didn't they take over Jerusalem? Yeah, they did. And somehow the Gentiles kept ruling the Temple Mount. To this day, the the Gentiles run the Temple Mount. I mean, the Jews, okay, you can have the Wailing Wall. Uh, Just don't, don't get on the Temple Mount proper. You try to do that. I mean, to tell you, you're going to have big problems. Um, yeah, Jesus said this, Luke twenty-one, twenty-four. <clears throat> they will fall by the edge of the sword, <clears throat> be led away captive into all nations. This happened in seventy A.D. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Again, we're living in the times of the Gentiles, even to this day. And, you know, what's interesting throughout Israel. We talk about, uh, well, Israel, you know, they, they took back uh, the land. They were reconstituted as a nation in 1948, and they were. But you know what Israel is full of now? And, and, and uh, it's interesting to study this on a map. There's all these pockets of the, of the Palestinians throughout the whole land. There's a pocket here and a pocket here and a pocket here. All, the whole land is checkered with pockets of those Palestinian settlements throughout the whole land. I mean, yeah, the Jews are back in the land, but I'm telling you, they got a major Gentile problem going, not only with the Temple Mount, but out throughout the whole land yet. Well, the vineyard of Israel that God planted and then made strong was burned and cut down, as he puts it here in Psalm 80, verse 16. And God's people, he says, perish at the rebuke of his countenance. He's asking for a change in, in God's countenance. These many long years, they have been under the rebuke of his countenance. Well, what can bring them out of it? How are you going to get out of that situation? How are you going to get out of this Gentile problem? What can bring about restoration that he pleads for over and over in this psalm? Well, the answer is not what, but who, as seen in verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 through 19, restoration in the man of God's right hand. Verse 17, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Now, I believe that ultimately, verse 17, prophetically has in view the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the end will deliver Israel, who will ultimately be the one who brings about enduring restoration. Now, Asaph realized that the nation needed leadership. And he asked God to provide a particular man. Notice, let your hand. After, you know, saying, we beseech you, look down from heaven, visit the vine. He goes on now to say, let your hand be upon the man. Who is this man? Uh, He asked God to provide a particular, he says, the man of your right hand. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. To bring about deliverance. Now, the right hand is the ultimate place of honor in God's presence. If you're talking to God, the man of your right hand, the right hand is God's right hand. Some suggest that perhaps the writer had in mind a a king uh, in his day or somebody on the scene there that could be in a leadership role to bring this about. But uh, many commentators uh, say, and I agree, that ultimately the man of God's right hand prophetically is clearly shown to be the Lord Jesus Christ, upon whom the fortunes of the nation of Israel depend. Note just a few references to this end. Huge theme here in the scriptures. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. Verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is a, Yahweh says to Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Ephesians 1.20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Where is Christ tonight? Where is he right now? This very second, where is he? He's at the Father's right hand. Hebrews makes, you know, a major emphasis, emphasizing the exaltation of Christ who being in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down. Where? Where? At the right hand of the majesty on high. By the way, the priests in the Old Testament never sat down. There weren't any chairs. Say, hey, there's a couch over there. Why don't you go sit down and rest a while? No, no. Nope. No chairs. Uh, for the priests in the Old Testament, they were always standing. There was always more work to do. Their work was never finished. Christ finished the work. His saving work has been completed. He's still interceding, our high priest. He's still doing things. But his uh, work of salvation has been completed. And he sat down at the right hand. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1 in Hebrews. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We better listen to this. This is the main point. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand. Of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And again in Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. If ever there is a person in the Bible who fits the description of being the man of God's right hand, it is the Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. This description is all over him. Furthermore, he is here called the Son of Man. The Messianic title Son of Man is traced back to Daniel seven thirteen and 14. In the Gospels, this is the title most used by Christ himself. We often say it's Christ's favorite title for himself. I mean, it's used more than any other uh, title in the Gospels, uh, being found 80 times. And it always, uh, when it's used, it's used only of Jesus in reference to himself. Nobody ever else says to Jesus, the Son of Man. No, Jesus always uses this, and he uses it more than any other title. Sound 32 times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 26 times in Luke, and 10 times in John. And in all these texts, as I say, Jesus is a speaker. No one ever addresses him as Son of Man, showing that he uses it in a unique way, pointing to himself as the Messianic Son of Man in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now Adam Clark said the only person who can be said to be at the right hand of God as intercessor is Jesus the Messiah. Let him become our deliverer, appoint him for this purpose, and let his strength be manifested in our weakness. By whom are the Jews to be restored, if indeed they ever be restored to their own land, but by Jesus Christ. By him alone can they find mercy, through him alone can they ever be reconciled to God. Well, it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom God has ultimately made strong for the fulfillment of his purposes regarding his delivering purposes for Israel. No one else can do this. In Isaiah 6, 1, he saw a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, Isaiah prophetically said the Messiah would be be given who would, quote, sit upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And then he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The hot zeal of God is going to make it happen. Indeed, God makes this man of his right hand, this son of man, strong for himself to fulfill all that he has prophesied and promised. In the Messianic text of Psalm 118, it says that the Lord will make the Messiah the chief cornerstone. And there it says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And indeed it is. Verse 18, then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. David Gazik says, In the strength of this son of man made strong, this man of God's right hand, God's people would be restored to faithfulness. They would be revived and once again call upon his name. It's in calling on the name of the Lord that Israel will ultimately know deliverance. And God brings them to this point. And they will know this deliverance through the strong man, Jesus Christ. We see uh, in Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 9, I will bring the one-third through the fire. This is in the context of the day of the Lord. Tribulation period. We'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They, the refined ones, "uh, they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. But notice... They will call on my name. And then in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, again, a context of the day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance. Deliverance in association and connection with calling on the name of the Lord. As the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Verse 19. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. We need your intervention. I mean, if God doesn't intervene, it's not going to happen. And he realizes that. So the psalm ends with this thrice-repeated refrain of calling on God for restoration, as seen in verse 3, verse 7, and now verse 19. And yet this third time, he adds the covenant name Yahweh. Lord God of hosts is literally Yahweh God of hosts. In keeping with his covenant promises as the covenant God of Israel, God's people Israel will ultimately be restored, and his face will once again be made to shine upon them, and they will be saved. And that's where they're headed ultimately. We live in the church age. It's interesting. I'm looking forward to teaching through Romans if I ever get through Matthew. But uh, in, in Romans 9 through 11, we have God's sovereign dealings with uh, Israel and how that intersects with church truth. But he comes to, towards the end of Romans 11, and he says, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God will enter into a new covenant relationship with Israel at that point. Well, by way of application, when God's face shines upon a person, they're in the position of blessing. That's true for Israel. It's true for the church. It's true for any individual. And where do we see the face of God? Well, we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. You know this is one of my favorite gospel texts here. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts. We need the light need it to, sh- to shine. And it has shown in our hearts as believers to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where do you see the glory of God? Well, you see it when the light shines in your heart. You, you see it in the face of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. When in faith we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, God's face really, in effect, shines on us. For believers... As we see in the New Testament, God's grace is written all over uh, His expression towards us. Grace to you and peace from God. We see this again and again. To know Jesus is to have God's grace, God's face shine upon you. Well, Psalm 80 begins with asking God to shine forth. That's where the psalm began, verse 1. And then three times He asked God to cause His face to shine upon them, verse 3, 7, and 19. This will become a reality when Israel finally comes to put their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, the Son of Man, uh, the man of God's right hand, praise God for his deliverance, his shepherding care, his blessing on all those who come to know the Messiah, who believe in him as their Lord and Savior. The prayer still goes forth for Israel, right? Lord, cause your face to shine upon them and they shall be saved. But for us as believers, we say thank you, Lord, for causing your face to shine upon us and saving us. Indeed, thank you, Lord. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.